Okay, hello everyone. It is uh, Thursday, the 25th of March, 2021, and this is episode Takashi69 of the Luke Thomas live chat. My name is Luke Thomas. I am from CBS Sports and uh, Showtime, and, and uh, well, that's about it for today anyway. And uh, let's see, we have to do a UFC 261 preview, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and probably a whole lot more, right? We got a lot of stuff to get to today. So without further ado... Let us get this party started. The hell is this thing? Jesus. All right. And if you'd be so kind as to subscribe, thumbs up on the video, share it with somebody who has not seen it before or you think could profit from it. Um, I appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, for today's episode, I'm going to clean my glasses off here because now I have to start reading all of your questions. Uh, as you guys know, I put up a thread on the community tab on this site about 24 hours in advance, and everyone fills it up. And then you guys give those questions that you like thumbs up, and then those usually get moved to the top. Although, even then, there's an issue with the algorithm. Uh, all right. There. Now, let's go and take a look. And what you guys have in store. Okay. First question. Does it make you feel like throwing up when people call Dana Uncle Dana? <laughs> uh, we'll turn this off too. No, that's... throw. No, I, I don't think of it in those terms. I, I wouldn't. I'll say this, man. There's been it's amazing. Sometimes the people will write me, and they'll write me being like, "Oh, I've been following you since like uh, the MMA fighting days," which, in fairness, is now something of a dated reference. Uh, I was with them for a long time, but that was like a, something of a second or even third act in my career. Which is to say, there's such turnover with the fan base that. Um, People don't even bring up the fact that I used to be editor-in-chief of Bloody Elbow. Like That was the initial way that I had introduced myself to the community on something of a broader scale. And no one ever writes me being like, I remember you from these days. It almost never happens. But yet, from that generation to subsequent generations of fans, you still have this. Because it, it used to be a little bit more of a case where... Um, when Dana White was really in full promoter mode post-Ultimate Fighter, when the UFC was really beginning to gain some steam, he was giving away stuff like it was, you know, a game show. Like um, showing up to a place, a celebrity-ass tickets, he's just chucking them tickets. Remember when they used to have these fan Q&As, and then the fans would be like, Dana, can I get tickets? And he'd chuck them tickets. To the point where he had to tell people to stop asking for tickets in these events because he just, you know, couldn't give tickets to everyone all the time in those ways. But, you know, very, very generous with these kinds of things. And uh, the name just stuck. It stuck across generations, uh, uh, even among hardcores. And there's still uh, turnover in the hardcore fan base. It's a testament to what he did as a promoter, I think, during that time. Um, and also, it's a, to me, it's like a recognition of just the reality of the business. I mean, a big reason... Why the UFC does well is because their interests, the, the the brand's interests, are you know significantly aligned with the consumers. Um, that's true for any successful business. But what I mean to say is, when you think about matchmaking priorities, when you think about what kind of product they're usually able to deliver on, you know they're hardcore fight fans themselves. To an extent, they're just sort of treating that internal ur urge. Um, 
And there's just a lot of symmetry. I think the community really responds to the strength of the product, particularly these days. It's been they've been on a good run. And so, you know, it's, there's not necessarily that kind of alignment, let's say, between the consumers and the fighters. I think sometimes the fighters have a very different idea about what counts, what should, what shouldn't, what the next thing for them should be, very, very differently than the fans. There's just natural symmetry there. So when you have these factors in play, the fact that he gets called Uncle Dana, um, you know, yeah, it's not. I mean, it, it, you couldn't look at it and say surprising, uh, interesting. But I don't, you know, it's not a personal attack or anything. Like, that's just a way for them to uh, describe a controversial yet by many well-liked promoter. I know they are completely different for many reasons, but who was bigger culturally in their prime, Ali or Tyson, uh, at the time as well as looking back now? Well, you know, I wasn't alive during... As as uh, weathered as I might look, I that is even a, a beyond my time, far beyond it. I was a, I was a kid when uh, when uh, Tyson, excuse me, was really at the apex. Or, I mean, I don't know what the apex. Of, yeah, about the apex of his stardom back then. But um, culturally, there's really no comparison. Ali isn't just bigger than Tyson. I mean, you could make an argument he's the most significant athlete of the 20th century. I don't, I don't, you know, there might be some disagreement with that. Perhaps there are other figures you could name, but I don't know how you have a top three without Muhammad Ali in it. I mean, here's a guy who was challenging, uh, the, you know, some racial barriers. He was challenging class barriers. He was challenging perceptions of, um, religious identity. He was challenging all kinds of perceptions about, you know, black masculinity, and I mean, I mean, I mean, I could go on and on. And he refused to uh, the draft, and so it was part of this enormous and hugely consequential court battle about the nature of conscientious objection and and what that means, and um, how far it could be applied, and who could who the government could take, and who they could. I mean, dude, he was part and parcel of a uh, all of the fault lines in a time in which the culture itself was quite turbulent and every sort of touch point of turbulence you have Vietnam war, race, class, blah, blah, blah. Um, there you find him, you know, that he's almost without peer for any athlete on that level. I mean, when he died, that was, you know, I've seen, I mean, I, I don't think I've seen us presidents get remembered the same way Ali got remembered. So Tyson, to me, I don't want to undersell his significance. I mean, when he was popular, it's in a, in a world where you just didn't have this kind of democratized uh, information and entertainment ecosystems that you could divide into, everything was much more shared around, you know, a narrow set of things that people knew about, television, Nintendo, whatever, you know, small little um, versions of everything today. Yes, he was a quite a significant pulp, uh, pop culture icon. Obviously, a sporting icon as well. Mike Tyson was, and um, you know, a huge figure of controversy given his run-ins with the law and some of the you know things he said at various stages of his career. But I don't think you can call him culturally as significant as Ali. Ali is, you know, civil rights icon. I mean, I. I really, certainly I'm, I, no, I am no sports historian, but just trying to reason through, I'm trying to think about somebody. 
and, and by the way, he's got a claim to maybe be the best heavyweight ever. Um, shit. <laughs> Not a lot of people who are involved in, in their lives in matters like that. Uh, that is hugely unusual. That's why people compare him and Connor. It's like, yeah, I mean, maybe there's some comparisons to be had about commanding audiences and inspiring nations and um, things like that. I, I, you know, a lot of the old, or I should say, a lot of the or the, the very diehard MMA um, tastemakers, I think, reject that idea. I don't think that's that's so crazy. But the comparisons really fall apart there. There, he turns more into Mike Tyson with his run-ins with the law and whatnot. Than he would with Ali, although Ali obviously had run with the law, but these, these were more of a consequential sort. They weren't involved in, when I say consequential, sexual assault is incredibly consequential. I meant more socially, um, uh, it, 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 was, it was part of the culture wars themselves, right? And so it was on these really, you know, massive touch points uh, in terms of sort of two different groups disputing whatever the cause may be. All right, you get the idea. How good do you think Brock Lesnar would have been had he transitioned to UFC after college rather than moving to the WWE? So he graduated, what, same year I did, I think, 02 or something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, he would have crushed early on. There would have been no one around that time in the UFC. I mean, now, maybe he would have gone to Pride, in which case I still think he would have done really well. But, yeah, I mean, Fedor... And Krokop, right? The peak of like heavyweight Pride era stuff was what two thousand four. You know, he would have been two years out. Nah, he would have been a little bit early with that kind of a thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, dude, I still feel like Brock probably could have been, you know, beating Kane. I don't know, prime Kane. The, the you know the pre the Kane Kane. Um, I don't know about that, but everybody else maybe. You know, maybe if he if he had done what you did. Never got di- excuse me. If he had done what you're talking about, never got diverticulitis. How good could he have been? I, I suspect he could have been very good, extremely good, one of the all-time greats. I know that's going to be like, all right, maybe that's controversial. I don't even know anymore, but I suspect there's going to be people who push back on that. Is Habib wrestling effective due to him being a big lightweight or his wrestling technique? Many 155ers. Talked about how strong they felt in there with him, whilst others talked about his technique. Yeah, it's a combination of the two, really. Um, so, basically, it's a couple of things. It is that when you're dealing with him physically, he's usually able to match uh, or exceed his competitors in the particular dimensions in which the strength can be applied. And then on top of that, he is just a much quicker decision maker. This is much more effortless for him in terms of reasoning through what the challenge is. Uh, and he's got a good sense of the game and how to play it in that particular dimension. So it's it's all of them. He is a big lightweight. That is to be, no doubt, to be uh, respected. And his wrestling technique is very high level. But he's also playing a game where he just knows uh, that, you know, we talked about this with Kamar Usman to an extent. He kind of knows what the decision trees are and where he can go. And there's wide latitude even within that about, you know, do I want to go for a submission or not or blah, 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 depending on what choices you want to make. But he's got this whole system understood like the back of his hand. That's unusual itself. A lot of people don't have that same kind of knowledge about all of those positions in the way that he does. So you really add in some of the physical tools. You add in that there's this focus on the game, this hyper-focus on this side of the game that a lot of people were not adept to. You add in some of the, I think, 
Some of the Sambo stuff that he did I thought was pretty interesting because it would allow him... I mean, there's trips and throws in judo and wrestling. All of them share trips, throws, and... Uh, you know, you know, uh, more standard takedown types. They all share them to different degrees, and they're all set up in various different ways. But they all kind of have that similarity. But I do think some of that Sambo past, uh, like you see with Makachev, gave him a little bit more on um, the foot sweep end, the tripping end. I used to, you know, you would go and watch Habib try to take a guy down with a double, and it didn't work, and he would stand and then twist into like an Uchimata or an Uch- Uchimata or a Sotogari. You know, so he's trying to drive one way and then switching and then going the opposite way from a wrestling traditional takedown like a double or a single and then moving right into some kind of, um, you know, more commonly associated with uh, judo or sambo throws and trips. It was you, That was a u- unusual combination, very, very unusual combination. He had a lot of ways to get what he wanted and a lot of ways to keep it in a way that just a lot of his peers did not have that same kind of knowledge base and then working application of it. He was just way ahead. Uh, hey, Luke, on your personal channel, I noticed you had started using some really cool red backlighting, which gave the image a real depth and took your production quality to the next level. Why have you stopped? Uh, because I was just experimenting experimenting with it. I'm happy to bring it back. Uh, I just need the right time. I'll, I'll bring all that stuff. I bought all that stuff for a reason, so it's, it's definitely going to make it come back out. But most of the stuff you saw at first... It's kind of experimental. Hi, Luke. Misha Tate has just announced her return to the UFC, not with one of which she is or was vice president, and will be fighting Marion Renault. Do we know if she's still with one or not? I don't know what the story is there. Um, I need to reach out to her and see if she'll talk about that, but I would like to talk to her, actually. Um, I got to host a couple shows with Misha, so I got to know her just a little bit better. She's a real, uh, She's a really nice person, and... A dedicated professional, I think, is a, is a good way to put it. Um, I'm actually, I, you know what? I, I think it's okay. Uh, Marion Renault is on her last legs as a fighter, which isn't to say she's some pushover, but you know she's probably getting out for a reason, uh, which is to say she still could win this, and I take that seriously, but not what she once was. Uh, Misha Tate has had four years off to not get her head beat in and take a bunch of abuse, and got to have a family and uh, see the world a little bit, and is now feeling better, and um, is still, 34 is not too old, the division could use a little kick in the pants, Um, could be interesting, could be interesting, I don't find that crazy at all, now she performs quite poorly, you know, there's going to be some serious questioning that needs to happen, but I don't, I, that seems winnable for either person, and for those reasons, it's hard to know what would be the on what grounds would we object to this. Um, I, I, I like it; I think it's kind of interesting, but I really have no idea. I mean, these, with these MMA retirements, you know that eventually they almost all of them will come back. Maybe people come back someday too. Who knows? You know. Um, but you ne- the the one thing is, people always joke about MMA retirements, right? You never know when they're going to come back, but they do come back. The one thing you can't say is you're never quite sure how they're going to look. You know, sometimes they take the time off and they look fine. You know, they look okay. Not too much ring rust, maybe an issue here, but they look surprisingly good or better than that there. And you're like, okay, no big deal. And then sometimes they'll take two, three years off and they look terrible. They look absolutely like a cheap version of themselves and it takes them a while to get back. I have no idea what we're going to see here. Zero, none. Um, and that makes it interesting for me. 
How do you think Chandler versus Oliveira will go? I think that if Mike doesn't blow him out early, um, that's Charles's fight to lose. Of course, Mike could blow him out early. Mike, uh, you know, he's been known to do that a time or two. Um, so basically, just think about this one. Let's look at it from either perspective. If you're Michael Chandler, what do you really want to do? Do you want to go the distance with a guy like Oliveira? Well, you might in the grounds that if you can show that you have submission defense, and you don't really get put in bad positions, and if he pulls guard, you beat him up inside of his guard, and he can't get to your back. Yeah, if you're capable of doing that, it would send a huge message, but that seems risky. That seems like not a good idea. Your best chance of victory, I think, is really uh, hammering him, is showing him in those exchanges to get him afraid. He is a guy who's been stopped with strikes uh, in, a, in a number of different occasions, um, you know, which shows both his resilience, but perhaps some vulnerability there. Um, and I think you really want to make him start second guessing these exchanges and then uh, go after him. I think you have to turn up the heat on him big time. Uh, but you have to do it from kickboxing and boxing range and be quite mindful of that, you know, clinch breaking the whole nine yards. Uh, that, that to me seems like the best path. On Oliveira, it's, you know, to me really about get Mike to slow a little bit, slow the fight down a little bit, um, be first with the exchanges. Um, I think invite the takedown quite candidly, you know, and, uh, you know, if really try to tie up with him in the clinch, work the body in the clinch. I think a lot of body attacks generally, if you're Oliveira, because if he can piece him, you know, uh, not piece him up so much, that's gonna be harder to do, but if he can touch him piece by piece by piece, extend the fight a little bit, get into that third and fourth round. It's not that Chandler's not a threat there, but he's not the same kind of threat that he might be early in the first, uh, and then you can really go to work, I think. Then you can begin to open up even closer in range and um, the risk of offense you might take in certain certain applications. But I do believe Chandler has to... Chandler would either have to... Ch Chandler would have to show something a little bit new, which maybe he's got, um, to go the distance with Oliveira and win, unless he, like, you know, is like rocking the guy in every round and then just can't put him away or something. But I just feel like... You know, um, didn't Chandler fight Goichi Yamauchi and then do basically okay with that? But, you know, Yam Yamu I think I got that right. If I'm wrong, you can get wrong on Friday. But I, I think that's right. And um, I would just argue whatever you, lesson you want to infer from that, as good as I think Yamauchi's guard is, I don't think it's nearly as good as Charles Oliveira's. Uh, and, it's, and I have deep respect for it. I think it's quite good. Here, hold on. Let me pull this up here. Goichi Yamauchi, yeah, I think that's right. And I remember Chandler won that one, but I think it was a little dicier than we remember. Yeah, decision unanimous back in 2018. Bellator 192. Um, that'd be I'd be curious to see uh, some of the more. Uh, I remember seeing some tape on it before, but I, I would be curious to go back and review it again. In any case, that's sort of what I think. Next month is a huge month for MMA that I feel like is going under the radar. UFC is doing business as usual. Bellator is making its debut on Showtime with some excellent tournaments. One is going to be airing on TNT and, uh, and Primetime for American audiences with familiar faces like Eddie and DJ. And last but not least, PFL is starting up with their new additions and even just announcing K-Flow, Kenny Florian, of course, on the commentary team. Rank the four in order of your excitement. 
Is there any fight you're really looking forward to or fights that you think are going under the radar? Um, Bellator tournaments go, oh, gotta be Pitbull versus Sanchez going under the radar. Gotta be. You've got the best fighter in Bellator history, the champion at featherweight, going up against Emmanuel Sanchez in the semis on one side. The winner of that fights A.J. McKee for the entire thing. A.J. McKee, of course, getting into the finals by hitting the 1%, uh, 1% or I can never remember the name exactly, um, but his modified McKeatine version of it on Darian Caldwell and then beating Georgie Karakanian and Derek Campos, right? Undefeated, all of his fights in Bellator, going up against either the best fighter in Bellator history and the champion or the guy who beat the best fighter in Bellator history. Got kind of close in 2018 when they had their first fight uh, the 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 long train Doofus, uh, Duke Rufus product, Emmanuel Sanchez. I mean that to me is like, you know, yeah, okay, I work at Showtime. But you're talking about under the radar. Yeah, it's under the radar. What I'm most excited about is um, what fights are on deck for UFC. It got to be UFC 261. Um, let's do UFC events. You know, I don't know if I <laughs> well, I got I got the first vaccine, so I guess I'd be fine. But um, short of the, having the vaccine, I wouldn't want to go. But in April, you've got Till versus Vittori, Whitaker Gastelum. You've got in the entirety of UFC 261. You've got, um, let's see, the return of Sadiq Youssef ooh, against Arnold Allen in co-main event. That is a great fight. Jesus, that's a great fight. Uh, Nina Ansaroff versus Mackenzie Dern is a hell of a contest. Um, there's a bunch of good fights. There's a bunch of good fights. So I'd say top of those, probably UFC 261's fights. Then I'd put Return of Beltor, or I should say Beltor and Showtime. Then I'd put uh, PFL, but I think that's a legitimately interesting thing that that's good that that they're doing that the is good and that they're back. I like it. And I put one probably least of those things, not because dude I like one's product a lot, you know, despite all their issues with their leadership um, and their you know bogus pronouncements of all their successes, seemingly bogus, allegedly bogus. Um. I don't know that that has a huge degree of significance for this market or really for that organization long term. Could be wrong. I guess we'll see. But that's the way I would rank it for sure. For me, anyway. How many fights does Khabib win against current top 10 welterweights? All right, let's pull up the rankings, see if we can hazard a guess. And I'm sure it'd be horribly wrong. All right, let's go to welterweight. Here is your top 10. Obviously, we're excluding Kamaru because he's not ranked. Number 10, Vicente Luque. Seems winnable. Neil Magny, I'd say that's winnable. Demian Maia, I think that's winnable too. Tyron Woodley, that's an interesting one. <laughs> I have no idea what to expect about him on Saturday, huh? That's a crazy one. Right? We talked about this on Morning Combat. If, you, if you've lost to Kamaru and you've lost to... Gilbert and Colby, you've either lost to people who held UFC titles or have fought in a bout where a belt was on the line. Um, that's not great that you have three losses, but you know, you're very much talking about championship caliber fighters, quite literally. Vicente Luque is enormously talented, but every time he has stepped up to somebody of that upper tier in that division, he's had some issues. Um, you know, He's a savage, trilingual, great boxing, but overall he has struggled with that that level. So uh, for him, beating someone like Woodley would be 
him beating that echelon, uh, perceived echelon of fighter. And conversely, if you're Tyron and you lose, four in a row would be devastating. But then you would now be categorically in a new place in terms of who you had lost to. Uh, those stakes are are huge. And I feel like it's one of those fights where Tyron could let his hands go. Uh, you know, he knocked out Jay Heron and Josh Koscheck, uh two out of three fights. So, like, you know, he's got the ability. Um, drop Darren Till. We know the story there. So, that's a hell of a contest. I don't know, though, that that's what I don't know what we're going to see. So, I, that's hard to answer. Kiesa seems like he might be too big. Edwards, maybe. Masvidal, maybe, because Masvidal, could they make 155, something like that? Covington, no. Burns, I don't think so. Wonderboy would be an interesting one. But he, I think he could get, some, you know, he could get more wins than losses. I'll put it that way. You have been to a lot of boxing and MMA matches. What is the best or worst corner advice that you've heard in person that the cameras maybe missed? Oh, you mean like at a, well, dude, I've been to a million regional shows. <laughs> I mean, fellas, it ain't that hard to get an amateur license and, and ladies too, I suppose we're watching. It is not hard to get a license for amateur competition in the state of Virginia. Let me tell you, shit, you know, I have seen, you know, here, here's some of the places I've seen MMA. I saw MMA in a place, I won't say the name of it, but it was in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And the second time I went to it was by accident. And it was filled with like, it was like a smoky pool hall. And then the third time I went to it, (laughs) you're like, why are you going back to this venue? Because I saw Doug Stanhope there. I saw Doug Stanhope there. That should give you some kind of an indication of the kind of place I'm talking about, right? I mean, this was CD. This was the Moss Eisley, uh, Moss Eisley Cantina. And, I, and other places, too. I've been to, uh, you know, it's a good show, actually. But it is um, part of it on a shooting range complex. Um, you know, the regional MMA is not normal. It's everything but normal. But that's what it is. So, okay. So, what kind of advice have I heard there? I saw one guy. Uh, he was, like, kind of on all fours looking down. Like his back is parallel to the ceiling, and there's a dude atop of him, like t- behind him, like the guy on all fours couldn't see. He's just kind of standing there, and the dude behind him is just like raining shots to the side of his head, and the ref is just looking at him. And you're like, dude, you're gonna stop this thing, or you know, what, what, what's going on here? First of all, came to find out that the guy who was losing and the referee were training partners. Okay, so that um, that couldn't be an issue, could it? <laughs> You're just like, what the fuck are y'all doing? I mean, that's such a conflict of interest, as you can see. Oh, my training partner is super tough. I'm going to let this one ride because I know he can come back. Meanwhile, that guy was taking an epic fucking beating. And I remember his corner just yelled, um, stand up, <laughs> stand up. I'm like, what are you, are you talking to Lazarus? I mean, you know, who who's supposed to stay? The ge- oh, the gentleman getting... Getting hit like a watermelon at the, the the last fifteen minutes of a Gallagher act that that the, that's the one who should just stay ah rise from the dead Lazarus why don't you I was like why don't you yell at the referee to stop the motherfucking fight I think that's a little bit more in your interest so I saw that once you know I've heard a bunch of stuff guys getting mounted you know and then they're like push them off you know 
shit that people in the crowd would say kind of thing. Um, I've seen guys go out and then the corner, they come back to the corner and the corner just like hands them a bottle of water. I mean, they got, let's say this person got just worn the fuck out and you know, they maybe shouldn't be there. Like they've got gym shorts. They got a dick sporting goods on, which is fine for like training. I mean, I'm not like they are quality shorts, but that, you know, it's usually not what you fight in. If you can at all avoid it for a lot of different reasons. Um, and you know, Going back to the corner, and you th- the corner is probably his friend. Hands him like a water bottle and say shit to him. There's like, there's like no advice. I mean, dude, I always tell people, this will not mean as much because of the pandemic. Because through the pandemic, you have been, you just don't know how good you've had it. I'm telling you, you don't know how good you had it. With the apex and fight island and then the silence and being able to hear all the punches. And there's no better example of this. There's many good ones, but the best one is Dan Hooker and uh, Dustin Poirier. And you can hear these rams crashing into each other over and over again. I used to sell that on people as why they should go watch regional MMA, right? It's cheap. It's quite literally local. On You know, we have to drive a little bit, but it's nearby on some level. And you get to really hear what a fight sounds like, a real fight uh, between two trained competitors. It, it's, it's the sound impact of it is extraordinary when you're there. Um, so, you know, you, you, you see that brutality and then you hear corner advice that you would just couldn't imagine ever being taught as a, uh, a method of best practices, but that's, um, that's regional MMA. Vladimir Klitschko was deemed by many to be a boring champion during his time as the heavyweight boxing champ. Do you think it's harder to call any UFC champion boring because of the multifaceted, never-changing nature of the sport? Um, Boy, that sounds like you are tempting fate to say, oh, it's harder. Okay, yes. Yes, yes, it might be a little bit harder. I also think that like with, with heavyweight MMA... You obviously get the kinds that go three rounds of two dudes who, you know, who are certainly formidable competitors, but not going to win any bodybuilding competitions anytime soon, laying on each other, you know, for 15 or, or, or more minutes. You do get a little bit of that, but also the nature of heavyweight with those little gloves is the power carries and, you know, it's just too chaotic at that weight class for, um, you know, for... To, for the norm, I would say, to be the two guys laying on each other without seemingly a whole lot of um, something happening. So in that sense, there might be something to it. But I would be very careful about drawing rules about the changing nature of MMA as a key contributor to a consistent ability for those fights to be better. That could, you know, um, maybe you just don't like boxing as much. Which is okay, but like I think that might have more to do with it. A lot of people who want to tell you like MMA is more dynamic. Yes, I mean there's, I mean that's quite literally true. That MMA is more dynamic in the sense of the modalities of combat that you are allowed to use. It just is, you know, what you can see is incredibly diverse and in many ways spontaneous and highly effective and blah blah blah. You can go on and on. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate as to having a, uh, a more advanced fight palette. 
you know, I was talking to Steve Farhood, um, who is just an absolute gem of a person, legend in the fight game. I mean, my goodness, this guy. And somebody who's been at every level of it, whether it was the high-level fights, the high-level prospect fights on Showbox, of which he's been a, a key part, or just, you know, watching in his spare time coming up as a boxing fan, and, and even now, you know, some of your Golden Gloves levels or, or even uh, all the spaces in between, he really just li- has lived a life of boxing. Uh, I asked him if he was into MMA, because Al Bernstein, you might know the commentator, uh, has commentated MMA on Showtime. He did it with Steven Quadros for some of the Show XC cards. And was very good at it. And he he loves MMA. He's all about it. Um, Steve didn't doesn't care for MMA, but he doesn't hate it or anything like that. It's just it's not for him. And you have to understand that. But you know, while uh, certainly he's from an older generation, you talk to this guy about fights, about what makes fights interesting, about what makes fighters unique and special. You know, this is this is a guy whose palate is extraordinary. You know, he really understands the deep significance and nuances of every perceived variable in a fight and um, and everything outside of it. And so a lot of times, you know, we want to take the more dynamic range of what's possible in an MMA fight as shorthand for greater sophistication. And in some ways, it kind of is a little bit of an evolution of things. Certainly, I want to be fair about that. It very much is an evolution of things. But at the same time, um, an appreciation for one and not liking the other. I'm not judging you for it. People like what they like, okay? But uh, in either direction, if you don't like boxing or you don't like MMA, that by itself is not evidence of purity, I think, um, or sophistication even. I think uh, specialization about each of them on its own is sophistication. I don't know if I made my point effectively there. Are you ready to rule out Tony Ferguson from the lightweight title picture? For the short work term, yes. Um, I think there is something to be said for his performances in short notice fights. Venata almost finished, but one. Gaethje and Oliveira. And he's got Benil coming up. I think that's going to be a pretty telling fight, right? Thoughts on maybe having Gaethje fight Nate Diaz as a consolation for being passed up? Yeah, you had to get Nate to agree to it. Good luck with that. Thoughts on who the tough coaches will be now that Usman and Masvidal are fighting in May? I don't know. I, I, guys, I'm, I'm not. I'm not like. <laughs> I'm not doing a bit. Like I will watch the fights. I will pay attention to who comes out of it. And I've I've recognized openly there is a enormously declined but measurable, consistent, engaged audience that likes this stuff. I uh, and we'll watch the Ultimate Fighter. I'm not like doing like some kind of like hipster bit where I'm going to prove to you. Just how, you know, how uh, hardcore I am of a fan by not watching tough. Some people do that performative bullshit. I'm just telling you, you know, you, you've got 24 hours in a day. You got to decide how you're going to spend that time. It's just not, it's just not a d- effective use of my time. So um, good luck to whoever gets to be the coaches. It'll be interesting. I'm sure we'll talk about it to an extent in the morning combat. But as anything I'm like even at all paying attention to beyond literal workplace requirements no uh, if islam runs through the 155 division similar to habib will you retract your statement about how 155 is the best division in the ufc if islam runs through 155 division 
Well, it's been changing slowly over time. Are we at the place now where we can declare bantamweight better? We might be at the tipping point. We might be. We'll see. Yeah, I think if Islam did that, you would have to rethink some things. Sure. But let's see him do it first. And also, by that point, it may be true, independent of his verification of it. <laughs> Whose responsibility is it to reduce eye pokes? Boy, that is a great question. Um, should fighters be more active in keeping hands up or closed? Or should UFC be more aggressive with changing the gloves or giving out harsher punishments for eye pokes? That is a great question because it's not merely who you're asking it about. It is who is asking it. What I mean by that is, let's imagine two different scenarios. One is a UFC boardroom. Two is a commission meeting. Let's say they question, they, they ask this question out loud at the meeting. Who among us, UFC boardroom, commission, hearing, private one, let's say, whose responsibility is it to stop eye pokes? You could imagine that they would reflect internally about that. You might also imagine that they would reflect externally as well. They might have different perceptions about the different stakeholders and what responsibilities that they have. So first you have to realize every entity might have a different answer for this. But I'm going to say I don't know who has the most responsibility. Is it the referee? Is it the fighter themselves? Is it the commission who is empowering the referee and writes the rules and provides guidance on best practices? Um, is it the glove manufacturer? Is it the person who's in charge of who, which glove manufacturer they use? A lot of different ways you can ask that. I, I'm going to say it's every every step of the chain, to me, obviously has a responsibility. If you're asking the, who the most responsibility would be, I'm going to say in the current climate, fighters one, referees two, because the commissions to me have empowered the referees enough to do more than they're doing. They have chosen, based on other incentives, not to. But I do think that might be changing slowly over time. I don't know if the numbers bear that out, but that appears to be what I'm witnessing. Um, but whose responsibility is to reduce eye pokes? In all of the reasons why eye pokes happen, I'm trying to think this through out loud. Yeah, the fighter, I don't know that it's his responsibility, but he has, he or she, has a great ability to bring about change. I think that part is true. So in that sense, you may want to task them with the most responsibility. But the referee to me is the red line. And so in some senses, their enforcement of it is even more important. Yeah, those are going to be the two most important ones to think about. Uh, but the promoter, I think, does have some responsibility to investigate manufacturing you know, uh, rethinks. And I do think that the commission needs to think about whatever rules they have and best practices that they advise um, to their officiating core about these kinds of decisions. Let's see. Uh, hi, Luke. One could argue that the biggest stars in boxing are predominantly heavyweights, Fury and Joshua in this present time, and the likes of Ali and Mike Tyson in the past. Why is this not the case in MMA and UFC in particular? It just seems like heavyweight fighters in MMA 
don't get the same shine. Well, I, I this is very much a function of the present because this is not how it used to be. Um, you got to let your fandom last a little bit. I'm not saying it's always been the opposite, but what I will say is in the Klitschko era, which coincided with a strong uh, MMA heavyweight era, Krokop, Pride, Noguera, that sort of a thing, and then to an extent UFC 2, and then of course during the integration of those organizations, Strike Force as well, um, which was sort of near the end of the Klitschko run, uh, you had a very, very strong MMA competition at the heavyweight. I mean, Brock Lesnar was a phenomenon here. It's just, there's just not... I mean, Stipe, when, I, I told you guys this before, I've been so wrong about him. And then really doing these resume reviews, I really like doing them because I really felt like for the first time I was beginning to get a better understanding of what I had been missing about Stipe Miocic and why he was um, so good and why he had achieved so much and why I, perhaps I didn't get it in real time in the way that I should have. Um, but he is something of an accidental champion for a lot of different reasons to a lot of different people. And even in that role, he just wants to be a family guy. He doesn't have a larger-than-life personality. Tyson Fury is an enormous man with an outsized personality to the nth degree. Anthony Joshua is a promoter's dream come true. To an extent, Deontay Wilder is as well. And then you have a series of other fighters you know, hovering around that area, the, the Ruizes and the Whites and the Pavetkins and the blah, blah, blahs. They're not to me, uh, nearly as interesting. Um, you know, you, you take away some of those top three guys who are special. What I'm pointing out is, to me, it's just an era where you have these all kind of at the same time, and there's turnover with that. There was a lot of criticism about the state of heavyweight boxing when Klitschko was in it, if not so much for their talent, although there was some of that, for how boring it was and everything else and how no one was inspired by the heavyweight champion anymore and boxing didn't have one. MMA was offering a pretty good product at the time. How, how much the public was... Connecting the dots between, you know, um, wow, over in MMA, they really have some strong heavyweight competition. I, I don't know. Couture was popular for a time. Obviously, he was on the smaller end, but he did fight and win titles at heavyweight, including after the, the uh, 2005 boom. I think it was 2007 or so. He beat Tim Sylvia, which was huge. They're just looking for the right ones. Right now, boxing tends to have two guys from the U.K., couldn't be more different, yet in many ways are obviously very similar, and that fight is going to be huge, huge, huge. It's just a special time and place. These things naturally churn. There's nothing structural that I can detect that I know about that would make it so that the heavyweight champion of MMA couldn't be as popular or more than the dominant figures of boxing. Maybe not get as much money. Um, there might be some constraints I, I need to you know more thoroughly consider, but in general... If, if things line up the way they're supposed to, they, they'll, they'll get their shine. Thoughts on how Vittori versus Till might go. I tend to think Vittori is... I, I tend to think he's a tough customer, dude. I tend, tend to think he, you know he's probably going to win that. And then UFC's going to that run that one back with um, Adesanya. That really is an interesting one. I think Vittori's takedowns are super underrated. His... Choices are better. He does, you know, tend to maybe do a little more volume than he needs to, but he has come a long way as a competitor. And he's already good. You know, Till is obviously a good size for the weight class, but so was Vittori. Vittori is a tough customer, man. I take him very, very seriously. He's a super tough customer. Um, obviously, you know, it's five rounds. I think Till is going to be a nightmare early, but I, I really think down the stretch you have seen Vittori tested. In fights that have gone long, you know, he puts his foot on the gas. Uh, 
very, very impressive in his efforts. So I tend to think that if unless Till gets a little unless Till really shines early, I, I tend to think that's that's Marvin's fight to lose. But you know. We'll see. Uh Luke, did you see Dan Hardy's interview on Submission Radio? Any thoughts? Enjoy Sunday with your family. Um I didn't see it. I did read a write-up of it. Basically, I, I, it sounds like it's some kind of career advancement dispute. Something like that. Um, it sounds like, you know, and again, who the hell knows? I, I haven't talked to Dan about it, but it happened like in front of a bunch of other people. And they were witness to somebody who's maybe higher up being put on the spot about like career um, opportunities, which, you know, probably was a little bit awkward, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I could see how that would cause an issue in the workplace quite candidly. Um, if they're trying to be at all professional about it and it sounds like, you know, you would at least have to have a meeting about it. Right. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because Dan's one of the best. I've really, I've, I've always got along really well with Dan you know, we've hosted shows together. He's a pro, you know. Um, that's a strange one to me. That's a strange one. The key is, it's like in any workplace, who did you piss off? He pissed off the wrong guy. I don't know who that was or what, what role they occupied and what the exact charge was, but it was it was enough to get the boot, man. That's That's crazy. Can you talk a little bit about how much you believe height to be a factor in strongman competition? Alexei uh, Novikov won World's Strongest Man last year, and he's just over six feet tall. Is it as simple as having a bigger frame being equal to having more potential? Eddie Hall is relatively short versus the current most successful strongman, but even he is 6'3". Yeah. Most of the guys are around uh, usually 6'2 at the low end. And usually somewhere closer to six five, six six. You see a lot of them six seven. Um, I think Brian Shaw six eight, six eight or six nine. One of the two. Um, I think Thor is pretty close to that six nine, six ten, something like that. Yeah, I don't know that it's so much height because if you think about it, it means you know for a deadlift you can't standardize range of motion. But if you're that tall, unless your arms are just absurdly long, even for your own body you're going to have a longer way that you have to pull. So it couldn't be that. My hunch is that if you're that size, and of course if you're athletic and you train hard and blah, 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 take a bunch of drugs, at least for that version of strongman, you can do strongman by weight class and it's drug tested, but for that version of it, the entertainment side of it, um, it's because you can get masked at like, you know, Eddie Hall is, was what was he, like low fours when he when he was competing um, in, in strongman at his peak? You got to be like Nova, Novikov is, dude. I don't. This guy is something special. But in general, when you're talking about your Thors or your even your Eddie Halls, who's shorter, yes, but still huge, and your Brian Shaw. You're talking about guys who are high 300s, low 400s in weight. I tend to think you simply have to have that kind of mass, muscle mass, and overall mass to be able to move 900, a thousand pounds off the ground, or you know, doing reps of three, four hundred pounds overhead, or you know, whatever it may be carrying things and pulling trucks. I simply think you have to, you don't have to be six, seven, 400 pounds, but you got to be, um, you're going to have to be well into the three hundreds. I think 
Novikov, however, disproves seemingly all of that. I, I can only tell you what the standard trend is. Uh, these two guys, they're brothers from Scotland. They're both 6'4", like 330, 340, you know, just huge monsters of men. Um, the the guy from French Canada, Geron, I forget his last name, uh, same thing, well into the 300s. I think he might be 6'2", but he's well into the 300s. I mean, he's got to be just just enormous person. Um, and Novikov is, I think, six foot or so, as you mentioned. I think he's only around like 280, and he has unbelievable power. You know, there's a lot of ways you can see somebody has power, like through a deadlift. How would you know someone is strong in certain positions? The two ends of it are ways you're going to look. And how fast does the weight move off the floor, and how fast or easily do they achieve lockout? Obviously, there's more than that, but you know, those are two things you can easily look for. His ability to move weight off the, off the ground or from a static position, really any kind of static position, no matter the lift, pressing overhead, pulling, pushing, whatever it may be, is extraordinary. He picks things up like, you know, to get that initial burst of movement like it's nothing. He is a shocking strength athlete. And and to your point, he's not, he's whatever weight he is, he's definitely not over 300 pounds. Or at least he wasn't when he won the last World's Strongest Man. But he's sort of the exception to the rule in a major way. You've seen guys who, um, you know, who are who are pocket rockets who could do something for their size, but they usually was just, you know, the, it's it, the, the entertainment side of strongman. Now, again, strongman can be any weight class, any gender, you know, whatever, amateur or pro. Is there a pro? I guess there is. But, um, you know, all, you can do it in a way that's for your fitness level and for your size and age, but the entertainment side of it, it's just all heavyweight. There's no, there's no really other side of strongman, at least not now. Uh, Novikov is the only one who's built like that. All the rest of these guys are like, even like, you know, Marius Pujanowski, I think he was, I think he's like 6'4", and when he was competing, I'm not sure how much he was. Let me see, Marius Pujanowski. Uh, let's see. He's 44. He was 6'1", and they currently list him at 262. But that is, might be because he's fighting MMA. I don't know what the heaviest was. Oh, his record for bench. He benched 640. Jesus. Squat is 840, and his dead is at 915. Yeah, he's strong as fuck. <laughs> yeah. he's He is dumb strong. Good lord. Um, I don't know how much he weighed at the time though. So yeah, but that's, that's a better question for like Johnny Candido or, you know, Alan Thrall or, uh, whoever. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's 
first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. If you were to have an MMA exhibition match with anyone for any particular reason, please elaborate. Who would it be against? It would be against someone of a similar size and competition slash training level. And beyond that, I wouldn't care. That's it. I don't have any grudge, believe it or not, to, 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 to at this level, certainly, to go like fist fight somebody. Nah. Put, put me up against somebody who'd be competitive and let's go from there. Are you excited for Gordon Ryan versus Wagner Hocha? Yeah, I mean, I want to see if Wagner can push him. Uh, I tend to think that Gordon is on a, I mean, what is his win streak at this? Like 50, 60 matches? Something, something insane that he hasn't lost a match. So I'm, I'm excited in the sense that, like, can Wagner tip over the apple cart? No one's done it in a while, but it'd be interesting to see if he can. So I, I tend to think he's up against it. But when you're on this kind of a streak, you're always like, every match, you're like, okay, well, when's it going to end? I guess we'll see. What do you think about uh, Big Francis's wins over Curtis Blades and Cain Velazquez? Well, which win over Blades? He has two of them. Seems like when people like him beat wrestlers, the wins are just discounted. Francis stopped Cain when he was trying to wrestle him against the fence. Yes. Yes. Uh, listen. <laughs> You're talking about the second win over Blades, because the first one, I think, went into the second or third round. Um... I think Blades may have even won one of those rounds, or like arguably won one of them anyway. But um, maybe not. I, I don't know. So you're asking about the second one, the one that took place in China, and then the one over Kane. Well, here's the problem. You're right. He showed some level of ability uh, in, obviously, landing the punch, and then not getting overwhelmed um, in the moment in which he was there. That is true. But like, you go back to the Rosenstrike fight go look at that finishing combo that is not i mean that's not textbook kickboxing you know and i don't i don't think his coach would tell you that either in fact i've had a conversation with his coach about it he won't it's not he kind of just recklessly threw off rhythm and just made it work so you have to ask yourself you know has he trained of course he has trained could he apply those in a training scenario it seems like he can so the question is, it's not so much does he have the ability or you know some version of the ability. Can he just bring it to bear in the middle of a fight? Can he actually execute under pressure on those kinds of ways? Maybe he was able to with Kane to a degree, but A, there wasn't a lot of it uh, by virtue of how short it was. And because it's so short, not only was there just not a lot of volume of it, but the sophistication. I mean, he didn't have to deal with a series of chain wrestling attacks from Kane. So it's like, dude, the fact that he won can't be discounted. But the fact that these fights all add up to like a minute and change or whatever it is, that is really massively significant. Because you just don't know what it's going to look like when the heat gets turned up to three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten. The heat's getting cooked up to one or two at most. Um, the fight is just different later and there's no evidence one way or the other to make a clear determination about what kind of improvements he has made. The only people who know that are his coaches. And even they may not know, which is to say, maybe Francis uh, underperforms on Saturday. Maybe he overperforms. But, I mean, they've, they're the ones, obviously, to be more you know sensical here, they, they are the ones who have seen the progress. But for you and for me, 
uh, when folks are like, well, what can you take from Francis's wins? Okay, what, well, answer the question. What can you take? He did show some technique, uh, certainly in staying on his feet against Velazquez. Uh, obviously, in all of his fights, he has shown just otherworldly punching power. Um, and that has mattered to a great degree, but he showed a lack of composure against Rosenstrike. Didn't intend to cost him, but it did against Ibe the first time. It's just, it, it, this fight is fascinating because Francis is a very sympathetic figure and Stipe is a well-liked figure. It's, it's, a, it's a very much a, a fight of gentlemen in their own kind of ways. Um, but I really caution strongly against a broad conclusion here unless you just have really good information about something because as an observer on the outside, you just don't know what you're going to get with Francis. You really, really don't other than big punching power. And, you know, maybe this time that will be enough. But if he knocks, let's say he knocks out Stipe in 10 seconds. What did you, what can you say you learned about Stipe's wrestling? <laughs> or sorry, not Stipe, I'm sorry, uh, Francis's wrestling. You can't say jack shit. Uh, so, you just, let's just see what happens. Look, Josh Thompson and Big John recently said on their podcast that Oliveira doesn't stand a chance in the stand-up against Chandler and that Chandler also has the advantage in the grappling department as there's no way Oliveira can submit him. I personally don't think the, the, the fight will be necessarily that simple one-sided. Chandler does show very, very good scrambling um, and submission defense. I mean, that is quite clearly true. But even in the second Alvarez fight, the time in which... Eddie was able to hold dominant grappling positions did make a difference in how that fight ultimately was judged. So I would strong, I would push back on that pretty strongly. Um, I would say that, yes, I can see certain circumstances, short lived ones where he might be able to go into the guard uh, and avoid a triangle and back out or land a big shot or two and then decide to disengage or somehow just limit exposure. And then in those minimal uh, uh, interactions, um, show good defense and show some decent offense and then the wisdom to not overstay your welcome. And that could accumulatively add up to be actually pretty important. Yeah, I can see that totally being the case. And I can see him if he gets into a bad position, scrambling out. What I have a harder time accepting is that um, Oliveira wouldn't be able to sweep or find a way to the back or threaten with leg entanglements to get to the back or to cause scrambles and that on his feet that the jab won't do enough work to, um, you know, Chandler has shown a history of being hittable. Uh, I do wonder to what extent the really improved abilities of the jab of Oliveira might make that known. But, like, let's be clear about something. One thing I think I said earlier that I'm sure Thompson and Big John would, would probably agree with, and I think you guys would agree with as well, if we're talking firepower, it's not a debate. It's not a debate. I, there, I don't know what one strike Oliveira has maybe some kind of ground and pound from Mount or something. But other than that, any time Chandler hits versus Oliveira, he's going to hit harder. I think that's true with virtually any strike he can throw. And I think that's going to have a, I think that could, I should say, be a major influencing factor. Should knees to the head of a grounded opponent be legalized? Yes, but you have to remember what that means. If they're on their back, no. Although I've seen that. I've, Kevin Randleman lights someone up for that. If they're on their um, if they're on their shoulders or on their stomachs or whatnot, no, they have to be able to be on their knees such that neither hand is supporting. 
So in other words, you'd have to have. Um, let me think about the, think of this through. What you're trying to have is a scenario where they're just on their knees. Could you game it with both hands? Yeah, if you had both hands down, I think that'd make that the rule. You have to have both. But then you could still be on your knees and be up. Yeah, I'm not sure how you would write the rules on that one. So let me let me let me retract that halfway. I'm for a rule set that clearly defines the scenario where you could be attacked. Is one where um, the person is on their knees and their weight is supported, not with any use of their hand, but like their and their posture is at least somewhat upright. Their posture is not their spine is not parallel to the mat or parallel to the ceiling. It's closer to perpendicular. Under those circumstances, could you write rules to reflect that? Yes. Those other circumstances, no, because that. The reason why you, the difference is there, at least in my mind, is you actually give the head room and the neck room for flexion. What is the difference between the kind of impact you could score from there versus one from a flying knee uh, if someone level changed into you? I mean, it'd be virtually identical. So there's nothing in that sense um, specific about the kind of punishment or biological response that is possible absent other ones we already allow. If your head is on the mat... Um, and you get hit a certain way or your head is close to the mat, it doesn't have nearly the same ability. Um, the neck doesn't have the same opportunity for flexion. And I think that can create a series of, of new problems that perhaps we don't really want to introduce. Do you think TJ Dillashaw will attempt to use wrestling against Corey? Not a doubt in my mind. Not a doubt in my mind. But is he really that much of a back taker? and a backpack guy, or like a move-to-mount guy, to me, I wonder just how how long he could keep that up. I think that'll be a big part of what he does, but I don't think <clears throat> that's that's going to have to accompany something else that gets the W. This could be a building block ingredient in other forms of offense that do more. But I, I, I mean, it's like, is Aljamain a backpack threat? Yeah, like he's a huge backpack threat. You know that any time you're wrestling that guy uh, and graveling with him, and he doesn't even need to be a backpacker. Remember, he submitted Mizugaki with a head and arm triangle hanging underneath from guard, I think, no less. I mean, that is a dude. That is sh fucking strong. You got to be, you're, you're doing this hanging underneath? Shit. You got to be. Aljamain Sterling is probably insanely strong, at least in terms of like grappling strong. That is hard to do, very hard to do. Um, so you know, you know, going in, you've got that to deal with. Is TJ that kind of a grappler? I don't. I'm a little less convinced by it. So, but if he uses that to set up some of his strikes or to create hesitations or things like that, yes, I think that could be very, very helpful potentially. If Stipe fights John Jones, would that be the best two resumes matched up in company history? Ooh, it would be, let's think about that. Certainly if it's not number one, what would be? All right, let's think about some contenders. St. Pierre versus Penn is a big one. That was the first champ champ fight. Um, I think, I think that's right. Um, you'd have... 
Who else is a big one? Um, you could have Amanda Nunes versus Cyborg is a big one. Um, that might be bigger. The female goat and then the person who beat her to become the female goat. That's Maybe she was the goat before that, but she was definitely the goat after. Um, that's an interesting one, too. You know? So maybe those three are the, those three are the ones that would come to mind. But you're right. I mean, the storyline there, the the very best to ever do it at 205 pounds, going up against the guy who, at that point, if he beats Francis, I mean, he, he, you better put some respect on Stipe's name now. But if he does it twice, shit, you know, the best heavyweight UFC's ever seen. That's a hell of a storyline, man. That's a hell of a storyline. I mean, there's no denying that. Questions about Misha Tate. When is BC coming to DC? Um, we don't have anything planned right now. I'm guessing he's going to need to get vaccinated, but that's going to happen here pretty soon. So I think it'll happen probably, what, April? He lives in Connecticut, so April or May, something like that. I need to ask him what he's going to do uh, about that. I think he said he is going to get vaccinated. But uh, I think once he does that, we just got to figure out how to get the camera crew here. Because I can film some of it, but we need another person. So we have to just convince Showtime to send someone down here when we do it. But probably um, probably this year. Probably, probably by the fall. By the fall, I think, is when you probably will see that. Hey, look, Colby Covington said on Submission Radio that he declined the Edwards fight in part because he was... <laughs> God. Jesus. Balls deep in. Pollyanna Viana at the time of negotiations. Viana said prior to that statement that Colby and her were merely friends and said after the statement that she was revolted. Why do seemingly decent MMA media like Submission Radio continue to provide oxygen to Covington's grotesque gimmick without pushback? And is there anything to this act of his... Uh, can't insulate him from the MMA sphere. Well, first of all, you have to ask them for what their journalistic mission is. I don't think that they're trying to be Woodward and Bernstein, um, if, I, if I may. Secondly, you know, I think they're just listen. <laughs> you got to ask your, you got to ask a question about how much how you want to make your business. Because if you want a show where fighters come on and you constantly challenge them, they will stop coming on, and that business model will not work. So you're asking me why do they do it? It's because it's part of the model. The part of the model is a combination of fighter, uh, you know, whatever the they, whatever you know. They're not telling the fighters what to say. Otherwise, uh, I realize your point, which is okay, but you can still push back. But I'm telling you, if you're a fighter, you have a lot of options about where you could go. Believe it or not, and um, you know, you give them that kind of an atmosphere, they just they just stop. They stop. They're not under any obligation to talk to you. Um, I think you can develop a relationship with them over time where you can introduce those factors in a professional way, but that's a different business model. That's a different, I mean, you have to invest in that every time early. There, there are ways to do that, or you can just do it. And then, you know, you can burn that agent's phone number after that. Cause they ain't coming back on, man. This is why, you know, there's a degree of detente that goes into this whole thing because, um, at least on the, at least on one side of it anyway, because, um, they're trying to get him back. You want him back on. That's the business model.
How does the pay-per-view do this weekend? I was wondering that. I don't think it does that well. But I could be wrong. I mean, I think that Stipe really did benefit from the Cormier fights in terms of the public's awareness and exposure to him and their understanding of him. I think it made. I think it, I definitely think it made a big difference. Um, it's hard for me to tell exactly how much the fight fans know about Francis. Obviously, hardcores are in on it. Casuals to some degree, but not a whole lot. Maybe two fifty three, something like that. If Big Francis gets dominated in a loss once again, loss once again, where does he go from here? No way he can make light heavyweight. And if Stipe loses to John Jones, that's an even worse matchup in a lot of ways. I'd actually argue the opposite. I would say that uh, a good scenario for him if he loses is for that guy to then lose to the person he lost to, because now it creates a fresh matchup. You might think John, you might think, oh, if Stipe can do that to him, John can too, and maybe that's true. Let's let's even assume it's true. Doesn't matter. It's a, it's a fresh matchup you can make. Um, so, no, I, that would, the worst thing that could happen is what Rich Franklin had, which is as long as you're here, that dude from Brazil, the skinny dude from Brazil, is going to be here too. So you need to make a choice about what you want to do. Um, that's much worse of a scenario. Let's see. Is striking as deep and complex an art as grappling? Yes, and then some. Strike uh, Grappling gets... It's weird. You know, it's funny. When MMA was sold to the public, one of the ways in which they sold it was, okay, you already... I mean, it doesn't take a genius to intuit two guys punching each other in the face. We've got to sell the ground game to them. And then you, you try to explain, like, there's a art and a sophistication and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, jiu-jitsu kind of took off in the United States and has become what it has become. And then you talk to people and how much it's a, you know, it has this yoga quality and a spiritual quality and it's this chess and blah, blah, blah. And I don't mind any of those descriptions. I think they're all, for the most part, pretty true, or at least there's a, there's a really important element of truth to them. I, okay, fine. But somehow along the way, this idea that because I can watch and you can watch two guys punch each other in the face that we are equipped to understand the various nuances of it when two trained professionals do it. Like, where, where did it just assume that people... I mean, I, I go back to it. The Onion article, Area Man Overestimates Fighting Ability by 4,000%. People seem to think that they know striking by virtue of the fact that they can you know, understand a fist driving through the air and hurting someone makes a lot of sense. Oh, right. Yeah, that would hurt. Yes, that would be very, very devastating. Oh, you do it fast and hard. Okay, you must be better at it or something. And they don't just, they don't, they don't, you know, and listen, I certainly barely have a cognizance of it, but I'm trying angles and timing and distance and footwork and trickery and sleight of hand and height and reach and power. I mean, it is so much about, uh, good striking at the, uh, good MMA striking is so much about magic tricks about, you know, making you think something's coming and then surprising you with something else. And um, it is insanely complex and difficult to achieve. And, you know, angular and geometric. Uh, it's, 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 it's brilliant and it's tough. And it's everything to me that the other, sport, that the other ones are. 
Um, now, there's a question of you know how, what level of sophistication you need for either of them to advance, and maybe there might be different levels at which they become useful for various purposes. In that sense, there could be some meaningful differences, but I tend to think that all the talk about the art and the brilliance and the chess match of jiu-jitsu, I, it's fine, I, it's okay. We've gotten so in the weeds on that, we've forgotten about the same kinds of considerations that can be applied to... Um, to to striking. You know, it's one of these interesting debates. If you talk to uh, Cicero versus a sommelier, I don't know what all Cicero's might say, but I've, I've been told by some that, you know, they think that beer making can be as complex as wine making, um, that, you can get the, that you can get the same variety and complexity through beer making that you can through wine making. And, you know, there's not a sommelier in the world or any kind of wine expert I've ever talked to who even thinks that's a remotely defensible position. Now, um, I don't know where the truth lies. These are above my pay grade. I tend to think probably that the wine guys are correct. And you might think that this is some kind of stupid example, but I'm just trying to point out um, uh, in this case, there is significantly more sophistication, I think, with beer making than um, a lot of people realize, especially with the modern versions of it. And whatever the truth of the case of striking, I think it's kind of similar in that sense, which is to say, I'm kind of pigeonholing it this way. I'm just trying to point out that there's a greater degree of sophistication that has not been heaved upon it that maybe should be. That's a long-winded way of saying it. Sorry. Luke, do you get annoyed with BC when he brings up the four-minute rant Dana said about the media? No, I don't care about that. That was such bullshit that... I'll ne- I will never... Un- Okay. <laughs> that video, to me, remains one of the most baffling things I've ever seen in MMA. I get that, like, if you don't know the details, it seems like the most effortless slam dunk that ever lived. And I'm like, if you are even remotely, Jesus Christ, I'm, now I'm fucking blind after taking my glasses off. Let me put them back on and everything. If you even remotely call yourself a fan of this sport and you think that that video is convincing... You've probably been in a terrible car accident that did things to your brains. I can't understand how you can be a hardcore or a fan of mixed martial arts in any kind of capacity. Watch that video and tell me it's convincing without having someone drive a sledgehammer into your skull. Now, if you've had a sledgehammer driven into your skull, I can forgive you. But if not, how is it possible you find that convincing? You can go through and find every single piece of information that they list, which, by the way, some of it doesn't even have anything to do with the pandemic. One of the articles Brian Campbell wrote said it was an epidemic. He wasn't talking about coronavirus. He was talking about fighters revolting against management for more money. And they included that as him being wrong about the pandemic. He doesn't even mention coronavirus in that thing. Okay. So aside from the fact that some of them don't even apply, all of them are from before or immediately after the Florida show. And in fact, 90% of them are from before the first Florida show when they were going outside of commissions, when they were going to California and not using the California State Athletic Commissions, when they just wanted to barrel through without commission oversight, without somebody waiting a second to come up with some clear COVID protocol. That was, by the way, don't you, don't you remember they weren't even wanting to share these things with the media? New York Times had to obtain copies surreptitiously however they, however they did it. All of the criticisms come from then. Almost nothing 
coming from after that. I think the ones that it came from after that was like Jay Mariotti. Like anybody gives a fuck what Jay Mariotti thinks. It was insanely dishonest. It was insanely cherry picked. And none of the things <laughs> that the media was criticizing him for uh, were from when he had made all of the changes they were asking him and the UFC to make. Because what would you complain about at that point? You've made the changes. It is comical. So if he wants to bring that up every show from now until the time in which the show no longer exists, I wouldn't blame him, to be candid with you. Because that was such a raw deal he got from such an incredibly bad faith video. You can't, how can you be that bold and you can't even stand on the merits of your own actions to justify the worldview? You have to pretend it all happened at a certain time before all the changes were made. Or rather, I'd rather pretend that it didn't, I should say. Uh, comical, comical. One of the most, um, what is the term for it? It's not Trojan horse. That's not right. But um, supposed to signify one thing. It signifies the opposite. Anybody who comes to me and is like, yeah, man, Dana really got him. I was like, oh, pobrecito. Pobrecito. I'm really sorry to hear you were in a terrible car accident. And your brain was turned into a Dairy Queen blizzard. Because a, a, a mammal whose brain functions... And who understands the sport on some level should be able to go, oh, yeah, but that was before you went to the commissions, right? So then what are you talking about? That's the only question to ask. Oh, wait, these are all from before you went there? Oh, well, then why are you making the video? Oh, oh, okay. Oh, I see. Right. Got it. Because you want to be unfair. Okay. Well, Brian gets to be unfair back. All right, last one. How high are you? Not high enough. Do I think Adesanya, do you think Adesanya favors Till for the purpose of ducking a fight with someone who presents grappling wrestling issues? Uh, no, I don't. I, I definitely think it comes from the idea that he doesn't want to fight another guy, the same guy twice, if he can at all avoid it. But um, no, I don't think it comes from that. All right. Um, that's it for me. Here, let me put this on. Let's see. We are back tomorrow, Friday show. It's going to be me and a special guest. So stick around for that. If you want to email the show, morningcombat at gmail.com uh, is the place to go. And uh, yeah, we'll be back tomorrow, 11 a.m. Stay tuned. And I will be doing a post-fight show on Saturday night immediately following the pay-per-view. Okay? All right. Until then. Uh